Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But through the magic of digital distancing, she's our special guest, actor Natalie Armin. Where do you look for this hope that you know is there and out there somewhere? And your feet can only walk down two kinds of roads. Your eyes can only look through two kinds of windows. Your nose can only smell two kinds of hallways. You can touch and twist and turn two kinds of doorknobs. You can either go to the church of your choice or you can go to Brooklyn State Hospital. You'll find God in the church of your choice. You'll find Woody Guthrie in Brooklyn State Hospital. And though it's only my opinion, I may be right or wrong, you'll find them both in the Grand Canyon at Sundown. Beautiful. Natalie, thank you for joining us digitally. It's hard to say digitally. Why did you uh, choose that wonderful, wonderful poem? Because I was always intrigued by the idea that Dylan only ever read his poetry out loud once. And this was the only time he ever did it. Uh, I think it was 63, wasn't it, at the New York Town Hall? that He read this and he was kind of saying his thank yous and acknowledgements and goodbyes and stuff. I've always been intrigued by his relationship with Woody Guthrie. And anyway, I think the song, the, the I, Freudian slip, I called it a song, but I think it sort of, it, it walks the line between song and poem so beautifully. I mean, if he was strumming a guitar to it, it could easily be one of his songs, but it's got that rhythm and uh, there's a kind of incantation quality about it. Mm. Yeah. It's got kind of a, it's got a, some very odd rhythms within it, though, doesn't it? Because yeah. I, I had to recite it at, a, um, at an evening um, uh, last year. And uh, just when you think you've found the rhythm, he'll throw yeah. in like, something that completely screws it up, which, which makes it, I think, a, a poem in, mm-hmm. in, in a way. Although he does that in his songs, too. When, when yeah. you try to actually recite it, you realize just how difficult his stuff is. It is, yeah. And also, I was thinking about something Ginsberg says in No Direction Home, Poetry is words that are empowered that make your hair stand on end. <laughs> and I sort of thought, well, yeah, <laughs> so much of Dylan's words do that to me and lots of other people. So I think that there's something about Bob Dylan as a poet, and in particular his relationship with Woody Guthrie. He's kind of like, to me, he is like a modernist poet, and they're always referencing other poets. Something of the classical epic about it as well. You know, Ovid references Virgil and Virgil references Homer and mm. all this stuff. And I think I picked it because, I don't know, I like that he's summoning something that went before him. But at the same time, I love that he grounds it in the great American landscape. Yeah, and, and, and Guthrie was still alive. He would be for another yeah. four years. Because he, didn't he just jump on a bus or hitchhike or something to go and see him in the hospital and playing some songs? I Is that right? So. Yeah. That night, yeah, in, that night in, in New York, when, he's, when he performed that poem, I'm just looking at my big chronological Spotify playlist. That's the same concert as, God, a lot of it has been released, actually. I mean, the Tomorrow is a Long Time, the version which we all know from Greatest Hits Volume 2. That's that night. The version of Masters of War, he plays in, on the No Direction Home CD. Boots of Spanish Leather from a live collection came out last year. It was a hell of an evening by the sounds of things. Quite quite incredible. And and as you say, he's not known for, for saying his poetry out loud. And that's a really interesting example. And he says, I just happen to have it here. And he <laughs> unfolds the paper. 
Do you think he really <laughs> just happened to have it here? I mean, he, you, I wouldn't put it past him that he just finished writing it in the dressing room. And because I know he did it for the uh, encore, I believe. But do we believe him? Really? Well, he does it incredibly quickly, like three times as fast as you or I might do it. Uh, mm-hmm. He's got fabulous breath control. When you when you try to do it as fast as uh, Dylan, which I did try to do and I, I had to perform it last year, uh, you kill yourself. I mean, you, you fall over. Really? You can't breathe. Yeah. You know, that, that's what make one of the things that makes him Bob because, I mean, the, every word is crystal clear, but he's galloping. Yeah. It's also, I think, really understated. If you look at the delivery and you compare, compare it to how an actor would do it, he gabbles through, not just pace-wise, but a lot of the of the words are deliberately put out there as if to have no importance, and only the interpretation will give them importance. Almost, almost a sort of modest way when he's saying, "Where do you look for this?" etc. He's not mm-hmm. pronouncing it; he's just kind of throwing it out there and not telling you how to feel, which is one of my favourite things about any kind of performance where they don't, you know, the audience are not told how to feel. But it's it's so underdone like that; it's fascinating. Well, isn't that how poets, you know, notoriously read their stuff? Um, without any inflection, and, which sometimes can be really monotonous. Uh, it it I, can be, yeah. And I was conscious when I was reading the extract that I didn't want to imbue it with too much, you know, actor. But uh, <laughs> but I just thought it's, you know, it's pointless trying to imitate the way he does it. <laughs> so so you try and get some emphasis out of it. But, uh, yeah, I think the way he does it is incredible, actually. So when was the first time you actually heard Bob Dylan? I was really little, probably about six or seven or something. And, um, you know, the long drives in your, it was either my father's car or my uncle's car and long drives at night where they'd been out and you would be in the back seat of a car. And this was probably the early eighties or something. And Lay Lady Lay used to play, my, my, my dad or my uncle had a mixtape and they would play, had things like Let It Be and, you know, but Lay Lady Lay was the song, the Dylan song that was on there. And I don't know if you have a memory of this, but being in the back seat of your parents' car at night on a long drive and you're tired and you would lie down and the, the lights, you know, the, the, the sort of lampposts along a motorway or something, they would be orange and then there would be darkness in between them. And I have a really vivid memory of the darkness in between the lampposts and hearing the lines, whatever colours you have in your mind, I'll show them to you and you'll see them shine. And I didn't know that the song, I mean, I thought he was saying lay across my big brass band, not my brass bed. I couldn't tell. (laughs) So it wasn't a very sexy song to me, except that I could sort of tell that it was quite rude as well because his clothes are dirty, but his hands are clean and... But yeah, I just have a really distinctive memory of the darkness between the lampposts and then the flash of orange and how you'd feel between the lampposts and the colours in my mind that Dylan would show to me. I didn't know who he was or what he was talking about, but just that it resonated somehow. So um, it jumped out in between the, the other artists that, that were on the mixtape. Was it the only song of Dylan's on the mixtape? I think so, yeah. Or if there were others, I don't remember them. Um, but that was the one song. And I just remember thinking that there was, I don't know, in your mind as a child, you just go, he's obviously ridden in the back of a car late at night. I remember driving to the Edinburgh Festival in the early 90s. I wasn't yeah. driving, but I was in the back of a car and it was very, very full. And I remember there was one point where 
from my viewpoint, the lampposts were disappearing into the rear view mirror. So they were perfectly central yeah. to the windscreen. Um, the wipers were going at the same time and there was some music playing and it was all in time. The, the lampposts were hitting the rear view mirror to the rhythm of the music and the wipers were doing the offbeat. The amount of time you, you spend in the back of a car on a long journey sort of directing little films in your head and it's always, yeah. always about the music, isn't it? <laughs> always. Yeah, and even as a young child, there's something about that that sort of sits perfectly within you. It's a composition somehow, all things coming together, and it did for me with Lay Lady Lay. You didn't know that that was Bob Dylan, presumably at the time. It was just a song. No, I didn't know it was Bob Dylan. It was just a song, yeah. So then I was introduced to him properly as a grown-up in the early 90s. I had a boyfriend that was really into Bob Dylan and... um his favourite song was Lily, Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts. And uh, he, he, I think he bought me Biograph. That was probably the first album I owned. The first album I bought myself was Bringing It All Back Home. But this boyfriend had a best friend who was also very much into Bob Dylan. And it was my Jules Jim moment in life. And so <laughs> I like these two guys and they both loved Bob Dylan and they were best friends. So it was a force really. so, so Visions of Johanna had a completely different meaning for me. It's quite interesting turning that song around to be about two guys, you know. Yeah, and then there were songs, you know, like It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, and, and um, Tomorrow is a Long Time. I mean, these were all the songs that I was introduced to Dylan properly in my early 20s, and, of course, the iconic Blood on the Tracks and all of those songs, and they both loved that album and all the songs in it. The thing about uh, Lily, Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts is that it is pretty much an entire Western film, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I think one of the things that I always think about Bob Dylan is that it always reminded me, in a way, even as a child in the back of the car, there's something about it that reminded me of the Westerns that my uncle and my dad and my older brother used to watch when I was a kid. And I used to always think that there's something about these songs that remind me of that movie America that I don't know anything about. Did you cast it in your head? I'm just thinking when I used to listen to mixtapes in cars, I'd always imagine actors in films playing the parts in, in these songs. Yeah, I mean, probably I probably didn't do that till much later. I was probably too little at the time. But no, when you're in your um, 20s, I mean, I know that I cast uh, only, weirdly, I only cast Rosemary um, in that <laughs> song. Uh, she was Anne-Margaret. Fantastic. <laughs> For sure. I mean, I, I've only seen Rosemary as Anne-Margaret. But the other ones, I'm not actually that interested. (laughs) (laughs) And then the other thing is as well, is I don't know, you probably, this is not an unusual thing for a Bob Dylan fan to say, but pretty much every boyfriend or partner I've ever had has been a huge Bob Dylan fan, which, you know, I don't specify it as criteria. (laughs) When I get together with someone, but it just happened to be the case, really. And also... You know, a lot of really significant friendships of my life. I mean, uh, you know, I think I probably mentioned that I was reading the Chronicles now, and there was a really lovely actor called Paul Basichardi who sadly died. But, um, you know, he and I, when we were at the RSC together, we used to have a game that we would play on stage where you would try and whisper on stage in the middle of the action as many Bob Dylan song titles as you possibly could and see who would win. And I always won. (laughs) But yeah, so this was the early 2000s. Yeah. And, um, you know, things like, I suppose, again, why I come back to uh, the bootleg series is because 
you know, he was a friend of mine. I know it's not a Dylan song, but he was a friend of mine is on there. And if you see her, say hello, which both remind me of that wonderful man and my friendship with him. So we're talking about the first bootleg series. Yeah, yeah one to three, 1961, yeah. isn't it? To 1991. Confusingly enough, the next one was not called Volumes 4 to 5. <laughs> Um, and I'm always so intrigued by people who sort of say that they don't think, and I think people even on the podcast have said that they don't think he's a great singer. I think he's, I mean, you know, when you see the way his rendition of Moonshiner on mm. the bootleg series is exquisite. I mean, he, he what is he, like 22 or something at the time? And I he's able to sing like a little old man, you know, and all the life experience he brings to that song. Well, people have such definitions and different definitions of what singing is. And, and, and yeah. so often they, they lean on a very, very narrow conventional description, i.e. can or can't. Whereas actually, if singing is using your voice and pitch and breath to emotionally convey a story or a character, then I don't think there's anyone better in the world. Who's a, yeah, same. When I was a kid and I was listening to music in the backseat, I'm older than you guys. It was uh, Perry Como and Andy <laughs> yeah. Williams. Now, you didn't see anything when they were singing. It was boring as hell. It was just, you know, if I'd had Bob Dylan played in the radio, then it would have woken me up. But uh, that was the sort of thing that he destroyed. He destroyed that idea of singing, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Again, like the modernist poets, in a way, sort of going, this is a time of change. It's a post-war period, isn't it? And he's questioning religion. He's questioning everything as it had been before. I mean, I know I've only ever seen him once in concert. And I was so struck by, but totally unsurprised by the fact that he started the concert with um, Things Have Changed. This was, I thought it was 2015 and it wasn't. It was 2013, but it was at the Royal Albert Hall and... Um, a friend, I was really lucky enough to, to get a call from a friend who's a music journalist who said, whatever you're doing, just fucking don't come out and see Bob Dylan. And I did. And he had those incredible seats where you're just really, really close. I was really close to him. <laughs> and I was like one of those maniacs at a Beatles concert. I mean, I just sort of cried from start to finish. <laughs> I could have reached out and touched him, but I, obviously I didn't because I would have probably been arrested. But... It was just mad. I just sort of think, what was he? He must have been 72 or 71 or something at the time. You just think, Jesus Christ. I don't know any 20-year-olds who have that much swagger and attitude, really. I remember noticing that he started it with a song that was about change. And it's a recurring motif, isn't it, in all his work, when he's a young man and when he's an old man, he's talking about change constantly. As you said uh, earlier about the uh, last thoughts on Woody Guthrie, the, the one time yeah. that I think he shows emotion where he goes, uh, good God almighty, that stuff ain't real. And that mm. to me is the other thing that he talks about is, is reality. Yeah, it's all a big lie, I think he mm. says. In, yeah. Mm. Every, what is that line from Things Have Changed? He says, All the truth um, in the world adds up to one big lie. <laughs> to one right. big lie. Yeah, mm, exactly. That's right. Was that the sort of the album that brought you into things? Yeah, I came to the bootleg series, no, because I'm, so we go back to the, to the early 90s when I was introduced with Biograph and then I bought, you know, Blood on the Tracks and Bringing It All Back Home and the Freewheeling Bob Dylan and I bought them all and I was completely hooked. But once I was introduced to the bootleg series, 
partly because things like, I mean, like you, Lucas, I thought Idiot Wind on Blood on the Tracks was the most irritating song I'd ever heard. And then you hear it on the bootleg series, and I thought it was exquisite. And I like the waltzy element of the... Um, like a rolling My mind's gone blank. Yeah. Uh, so there are versions of songs that are well-loved that, that make you listen to them and you don't they on the bootleg series i think we're we sound like we're roughly the same age give or take five years but i, I don't know yeah. about you but when i heard that box set i didn't own bring it all back home or highway 61 revisited or various albums so a lot of those songs not only were they the, the versions i heard first but i'd hear something like nobody except you having never heard planet waves and assume it was all that good yeah or i'd hear you know, I, I mean, still to this day, this is heresy to say this one on, on a Bob Dylan podcast, much less <laughs> the one that I'm doing. But <laughs> uh, Highway 61 Revisited has never really taken it off for me because I think I heard Sitting on a Barbed Wire Fence and I heard It Takes a Lot to Laugh, It Takes a Train to Cry first. And mm. that version of It Takes a Lot to Laugh, It Takes a Train to Cry, for me, is 10 times more exciting than the version that's on the album. But that's only because I heard it first. And for my generation, it was mine. And of course, there's the other thing about like being utterly seduced by the idea that you've got a drawer full of these incredible songs that you didn't bother putting on an album, you know, and mm. you just go, holy shit, what must it be like to be Bob Dylan's drawer? You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, and the most obvious one, obviously, from that album is Blind Willie McTell. But I kind of understand why he didn't put it on um Infidels. Uh, Infidels. Infidels, yeah. I, I kind of, I get it. I get why he didn't put it on there, because he's kind of, there's something about the song that's kind of doubting his own abilities as a blues mm. singer. He's kind of, I I understand why you would, if, if the blues is something about the type of music that laments the kind of the terrible state of life, but is also actually able to step outside of it and comment on it, then to be singing a song about somebody else being brilliant at that, it seems almost like too private a thought to kind of put on an album as a statement, if you see what I mean. You know, it's funny. It's You wouldn't think of Bob Dylan uh, losing his nerve, but it does yeah. seem like he, you know, he's as insecure uh, as the rest of us some of the time. Exactly. It's like hearing, you know, we can't not talk about this. It's like hearing Murder Most Foul the other day, you know, a couple of days ago when I heard it for the first time. You get that feeling mm. where you just think, I'm almost quite jealous that other people are listening to this. I sort of don't want other people to hear it. It's, I want it to be mine, almost. Yeah. And there's something about Blind Willie McTell. If I had written that song, I would probably not want other people to hear it. If that makes sense. The one that um, really, uh, when I first heard it, I find quite off-putting uh, was uh, Need a Woman, because that is way out there as far as mm, sexual politics and, well, which I don't think bothers Dylan. Uh, I actually, I thought it was a pretty crummy song when I first heard it, but I've been listening yeah. to it a lot, a lot lately. Not that I need a woman, I'm perfectly happy, but um, <laughs> the, it's, it is so bold. It is so, you know, is he a sexist control freak or is he just being as brutally honest with himself as he could be? And, and so he's being, he's revealing himself. I want yeah. you to be that woman. I thought, yeah. holy cow, man, put it away, you know. But yeah, it's it's, astonishing. the honesty is, is is astonishing, you know. And it's recurring as well because you sort of, you know, you watch um, 
No Direction Home, and he talks about the, the, the performers that he's drawn to are something in the eyes, uh, knowing a secret, having something that they know that you don't. And I wanted to be like those performers. And then you fast forward to Not Dark Yet, and the line that sort of slays me every time, I ain't looking for nothing in anyone's eyes. Mm. And you go... He's carried that with him, obviously, yeah, since being the boy who was looking for a secret in, you know, in people's eyes. To take that back to things have changed as well. It's, it's that only works if you can really digest the notion that he used to care. And yeah. Things have are just unalterably different now. Um, yeah. And yeah, so he's been looking for answers. He's been looking. I mean, I heard him refer to Woody Guthrie the other day in an old interview as my first idol. I thought, God, he wouldn't say that now. But he, he had heroes, yeah. he had expectations. And then, as you say, one day he's not looking for anything in anyone's eyes. And then I think that this song that he's just released, Murder Most Foul, is the one that goes, they're all gone somehow. I mean, I, yeah. I, you know, I, I think I probably said that it almost feels to me like his wasteland. And there's something about that sort of T.S. Eliot quality of list making in the poetry, which Eliot does a lot. Well, I'll just contextualise this briefly to say that we're recording this the week that Murder Most Foul was released, dropped, whatever the parlance of our time yeah. is these days. And it's it's taken an awful lot of us by surprise. We're all quarantined in our in our homes and suddenly Bob Dylan releases his longest song ever out of mm-hmm. nowhere. And a lot of us are just going and listening to it over and over again, aren't we? You know, obviously the way music is listened to is different now and people don't really play albums. And the fact that he's tuned in enough to know that, right, the way you do it is to write a fucking long song, basically, <laughs> that plays like an album. Yeah. <laughs> people will yeah. listen. And of course they do. And I, I think he's always been like that. And the, the fact that his music was awful in the 80s, well, so was everything else, really. So I don't just mean music. Everything was all yeah. in the 80s in a way. That yeah. his songs should reflect that. But, yeah, I mean, I know I sound a bit like, I mean, presumably everyone who loves Dylan sounds like this, but I just think that there's something shamanic about him and that he's able to tune in to the to the soul of whatever's happening at any given time and comment on it, put himself outside of it and comment on it, which I suppose blues music does, obviously. Uh, Who else would you want to comment on where we're at now in our quarantines and, you know, in the post-Trump era and everything else that's happened, except for Bob Dylan, who'd go back and draw parallels with when Kennedy was shot. And at least for the second half of his career, i.e. since 1990, which I know is ridiculous, he has been commenting on the present by making the old new or making us look at the old. And to to say to the the Trump era, remember John F. Kennedy, just as the ghost in Hamlet says to Hamlet, remember me. Yeah. Um, That's where Murder Most Foul comes from. You know, to say, remember this era before America broke in two. That line about we've got someone waiting could mean Johnson, could mean Nixon, could mean Trump. Time seems to envelop Mm. and and it all becomes instant and past at the same time, doesn't it? And that's, again, very much a a sort of a a motif of modernist poetry, is sort of playing with time in that way and presenting different elements of time simultaneously. You know, that he references the St. James Infirmary again, which is... Because he's in the St. James Hotel when he when he's sort of writing or singing 
Blind Willie McTell, isn't he? And, yeah. um, well, it's the same. The, the Dylan's song, Blind Willie McTell, is to the tune of St. James Infirmary. I mean, play them back to back. Yeah, exactly. They are one and the same, yeah. Yeah, and then he sort of mentions St. James Infirmary again in Murder Most Foul. And I don't know, I, th- I think perhaps rather mistakenly, because he's nearly 80 years old and because he means so much to me, there's a part of me that re- receives everything that he writes with, with a massive panic that is he dying is he ill is, he, is this his sort of, <laughs> is this him saying goodbye is is that what's happening to him but um because if you go back uh, as i do with some of the early stuff in in um in the bootleg series he's kind of had that old thing about him forever hasn't he oh god you know how's kind of the rising sun soul. on the first album is yeah. to me sounds like some guy who's Growing up in a whorehouse in New Orleans, not a yeah. middle-class kid from Hibbing, you know. Well, House Carpenter <laughs> yeah. on the bootleg series. How, how do you House that Carpenter, I love that. Yeah. Me too. It's astonishing. And again, it, that, that's another one that makes me think, really, you think he can't sing? I mean, he sings that just beautifully, I think. And as a story um, that has no – the way it dares to end that song, it's just it's, – it's beyond chilling. You know, yeah. They yeah. say, he says, what, what are the, what's that over there? That's heaven. We're never going to go there. What's that over there? That's hell. That's where we're headed. And then the boat sinks. End of story. That's right. <laughs> you know, no happy ending, no moral, <laughs> no see ya. Good luck. And, t- you know, the Bear Mountain Picnic as well. I think, you know, why this album? Partly maybe just that song, because I love it so much. I was just thinking about where it came from. Didn't Paul from Peter, Paul and Mary give him a newspaper cutting? Yeah. that was talking about this ship that, you know, ripped a lot of people off who were supposed to go out for the day. And it's so funny. There were, it's very funny. There were, so there are too many people on the ship, isn't that right? That's, yeah. Uh, the, the panic, the, everyone is panicking that they couldn't get on the boat. They didn't quite understand what was going on. but they So it never they, left, is that right? Yeah, they, yeah, yeah, they saw this boat and they thought, well, everyone's getting on it. We better get on it. And it, re- it reminded <laughs> oh, me. It's like the were, let's buy the toilet roll. Well, exactly. <laughs> Everyone's buying. It, it was exactly. <laughs> it's totally. It's it's totally the COVID nineteen toilet paper blues. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> it's, <laughs> no, it's, it's fear yeah. of being left out. You know, catchy yeah. title. <laughs> that's very good <laughs> but it is impossible you, now to look talk about any of this stuff without you know covid19 blues i mean everything is now viewed through this you know through this this lens of quarantine and i mean and well, obviously you know, i've been listening to it a lot more but i did find one song on on this album that has absolutely no contemporary relevance which mm. i think is a good thing which is uh, as far as i can see which is catfish I put it on and listened to it, and I've always kind of liked it. And I loved it. I played it many, many, many times. There's there's nothing to it, really. It's a song about a baseball player. And uh, it's, but it's really sexy. I mean, it's, I think it's one of the sexiest songs he's ever done. Just oh, the music, the it, music yeah. is really sexy. It's sleazy. It's lazy. It's, and it's, it's quite beautiful. And, and it's like a 
you know, summer's night when you've had too much whiskey. And it's also quite funny because I think, you know, the chorus, like Catfish was the name of this baseball player. I always assumed he was a black baseball player, but I looked him up and he's a white baseball player because it said he used to work on Mr. Finley's farm. So I thought, ooh, a slavery reference. No, I think that was a baseball team he used to <laughs> and uh, and the chorus, nobody can throw the ball like catfish can. I just see this catfish throwing a baseball. Um, clearly, it's a man named Catfish, but um, mm-hmm. I think nobody can throw the ball like catfish can. I find it really funny. It's like saying, yeah. you know, catfish, actually fish, catfish, throwing baseballs. Anyway, I just I just think it's great because it's not dark. There's no apocalypse. There's mm. no COVID-19. It's it's it it really is time out of mind. It'll it'll take you to a different place, a nice okay, place, good. you know, a fun place. And I was yeah. saying to Kerry the other day because it's an outtake from Desire, and mm-hmm. obviously that album also contains another song about a sports personality. And I wonder if uh, if there's, there's Catfish Hurricane and there's a whole other concept album in there of uh, of songs about sporting heroes from the mid seventies. I've no idea. <laughs> I mean, we mentioned Infidels briefly. There are five songs on here from Infidels. Really? Two of them are solid gold masterpieces, and I would argue that all five of them probably should have been on the album. Yeah, and, and they almost single-handedly say, um, Bob Dylan in the 80s, actually not shit. And then it was a hell of <laughs> yeah. a shock to hear it at the time. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, Sue's The Cough Song. Mm-hmm. Stunning. <laughs> I, I love I love that. It's really lovely finger-picking. Uh, and it's, it's, oh, it's beautiful. Fun. It's like embroidery, isn't it? Mm. It's really fun. I was going to say that Angelino is worth a mention. Um, oh, it's lovely. That, that, that recently, for me, is a song I've been playing for, for half my life, but I went to an evening that Michael Gray did the other week, um, just before we, we, we weren't allowed to go anywhere, and, and it's just been blown wide open for me. There was a, a thing he said about... Um, blood drying in my yellow hair as I go from shore to shore, uh, wow. which is a line I'd never really thought much about, but he clearly has. And he says, right, so here's the thing. If you're traveling from shore to shore, it doesn't take that long for blood to dry in your yellow hair, unless, of course, the blood is still flowing. In that case, it's, you know, it's a biblical image. You know, it's, it's, it's the Pieta. It's, it's, um, it's a crucifixion uh, image. It's the crown of thorns. And, I mean, there's there's just so much of that stuff in Angelina that you you start to unpick and then you hear it again. And you think, oh, okay, and it's it's just a, a massive, massive song. Well, there's so much in the bootleg series that is really difficult uh, that I didn't listen to properly, uh, like Foot of Pride. Boy, that's a tough song. Dylan's version didn't grab me when I first heard it. In fact, I never really listened mm. to it properly till I heard Lou Reed do it on the uh, 30th anniversary. Uh, live album. And I thought, this is a brilliant song. Then I went back and then I was ready, I guess, to listen to Dylan's version. And I realized that it is a brilliant song. It's just, it's, it's really tough. I think it's one of his, yeah. his, his most difficult songs. Uh, just like when the night comes falling from the sky, which I found just totally bizarre. Didn't, uh, I still don't get it. Uh, they're all, I mean, there's some really heavy shit on this, uh, on um, this particular bootleg. Yeah, I wonder if that's why I like it so much. Mm. I mean, you know, the first half an hour, the first 20 minutes, half an hour, are just heartbreaking, apart from Bear Mountain Picnic. Just one after the other, they're so... I mean, I know they're not necessarily his songs, but the way he sings them is it's so devastating. There's like 50-something songs, isn't there, on there? 
something like that. It's nearly four hours long. Um, as he he said once yeah. about love and theft in his press release, which would have applied even better to this. It's uh, like a greatest hits album without the hits. <laughs> but you know what? I forced myself yeah. to listen to Down in the Groove uh, a few months ago uh, just to see if it was as uh, as crummy as I remembered it being. Um, and yeah. there's some really interesting stuff on there. Actually, the, the, it was interesting to me because I think it was Jonathan Latham we had on the uh, podcast. and or somebody yeah. said that it's interesting to listen to him in despair in the eighties, you know, trying mm. to contact his muse, trying to, you know, be original, trying to be the old Bob Dylan or trying so hard. And, uh, and it is, that's actually quite moving. If you, you know, if you've got the, the rest of the canon behind you. Uh, so I actually, I quite enjoyed listening to the shitty songs on Down in the Groove. I think there's, mm. there's something there, you know. Maybe we just haven't unlocked it yet. Um, I mean, Kingsport Town, people say that they, the imagery isn't that, you know, it's pretty formulaic in terms of a. it's the detail he adds, isn't it? It's your Memphis lips as opposed to who's going to kiss your lips and, you know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the first time you hear Blood on the Tracks and twist of fate simple twist of fate and things like that you just go oh my god i don't think i've ever heard music that makes you ache quite like this i when that um v- when the vinyl version of the test pressing came out of blood on the tracks yeah i gave it to my brother for his birthday and he was playing mm. it and we both loved it for a long time in its bootleg form mm. so we were, he was glad to own it and his daughter who i think was four or maybe even three at the time he was playing simple twist of fate and that <laughs> she heard the lines about, you know, hunts are down by the waterfront docks uh, with a parrot that talks and all like this. And she just said to him, Daddy, whoa, who is this? This man can rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> I will never hear that song again now without thinking of, of how this Brilliant. man can rhyme. <laughs> that was her back of the car moment. Right. Yeah. In between the lampposts and the darkness. But yeah, I rem- yeah, I have such a vivid memory of that thinking, whoever this guy is, I want him to show me the colours in my mind, you know. And, th- and then I forgot about him for 20 years, you know. Is It Rolling Bob, Talking Dylan, is recorded on Clean Feed, Stuck Inside, Immobile. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guys. Digital imaging by Finn Guys. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. Thinking of a series of dreams where the time and the tempo drag. Suddenly the gate is thrown open and you're left there holding the bag. Wasn't making any great connection. Wasn't falling for any intricate scheme. Nothing that would pass inspection. Just thinking of a series of dreams.